Welcome to the Jeff Gross Podcast. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Party Poker. Go to PartyPoker.com to play tournaments, cash games, and improve your poker game. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear all of my future episodes. All right, welcome everyone. We got another very special podcast guest. This is number 114. We got the man, the myth, Carl Frock in the building. Carl, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Man, it's good. It's been a crazy year, crazy, uh, crazy time. A new year now, but uh, just you know, hanging in, man. It's been uh, been wild. How uh, how's it going where you are with the uh, pandemic and and COVID? How's your area? Yeah, probably the same as. Uh, well, I don't know if it's as bad as you in America, actually. But you've had a, a bit of madness going on with um, your new your new president and, and all the Donald Trump um, saga. Whatever your take is on that, whether you're Republican or Democrat, will depend on whether or not you you love or loathe Trump. Probably won't yeah. go into politics too much because that's not what it's about. I've got my views. You've probably got your views, which may or may not be different. And I've got views on um, on COVID nineteen as well and the pandemic. But right, right. Always better off. Always better off not sharing your opinion because you always upset or offend somebody these days. It's it's a tricky one, man. You know, that's a dinner talk. Uh, you know, at family reunions, the, the politics and and religion and all that. So definitely not good poker or uh, table talk. It, it does set people off. So let's uh, let's just get right into it. I want to know um, how you got into boxing. You know, you, you uh, you're four time middleweight champion. You, you got belts. You got titles. How did you decide to start seriously boxing? Uh, what got you in into boxing? So, four-time super middleweight world champion, which is 168 pounds. Um, I started boxing when I was eight years old. My dad simply just took me and my older brother, Lee. I've got two brothers. I've got a younger brother as well, Wayne. He's four years younger than me. And my older brother, Lee, we went down to the local amateur boxing club. My my dad used to do a bit of amateur boxing, nothing really serious. Um, and it started there, really, for me when I was eight years old. And I think it was... 10 or 11, you can compete. I think it's 11 now, but when I was when I was a kid, back in the early 80s, um, I was born in 77. So I was competing when I was, I think I was 10. So my first boxing match, competitive boxing fight, was I was 10 years old. And I've been boxing a couple of years um, to get to that point where I was actually in the ring, just me and my opponent, the referee, and a very smoky room, because back then it was dinner shows. So the guys used to sit there with cigars on, um, around a table, I'd have, have a dinner evening and they'd just be betting on red or blue corner. Uh, when I look back now on it, it seems amazing because times have changed so much to how they won. But that's how I got into it. My first competitive boxing match, 10 years old as an amateur. And I, I went through the amateur rankings right up until the point when I turned professional when I was 25 years old. My, my biggest amateur accolade is a world championship bronze medal. I lost in the semi-final to the Russian world champion um, on point. And after that, after that loss, but it was a great, it was a great period for me because I was the first Englishman to medal in the world championships. I became, uh, I became the rank number three in the world as an amateur <coughs> by meddling at the, um, at the world championships in Belfast in 2001. So on the back of that accolade and two ABA titles, two national titles and hundred odd amateur fights, I decided, um, with, with the convincing of my amateur boxing, sorry, my professional boxing coach, Rob McCracken, that I would turn professional, and the rest is history, as they say. And and so when you when you actually I see in two thousand March of two thousand two, this is your first recorded win. How, how does that work? Like all the fights before, it's kind of like poker with the hand and mob, right? There's a result. You see your tournament scores. Not everything is covered. Some things are, some aren't. So before that fight, how many actual 
like you know matches or, or how much had you had you boxed before that was your first recorded win and what makes that recorded why is that a recorded one but the one right before whatever that was before wasn't what 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 differentiates well, the that first, the first win that you see on, on march i think it was was it march 26 2002 what one was it yeah march 16 2002 yep so that was my first professional fight. So that's my first fight in the professional ranks, the paid ranks. Before then, I had quite a big amateur career. So I boxed um, I boxed as a junior. I had about 45 fights. That won't be shown. I've actually got my medical card upstairs um, in, my, in, my, in my keep safe, if you like. And I also got picked to box for England. So I had about 30 open international contests where, where I won a medal. And I went to Olympic qualifiers and various multinations tournaments. So I probably had about... Mind you saying that, I had about 100 amateur fights. I had, I had near or around 100 amateur fights before I had that first fight in March 2002 with Michael Pinnock. That was my first fight with no vest, no head guard, small gloves, and I got paid. So that was the start of my professional career. And and when you when you go and you're in at your level at that point, you know it's kind of crazy to look at your career and how you you just went chalk wins twenty six up to twenty six and zero. Uh, and I, I definitely want to cover some of the the adversity. But when you when you go into that first fight, are you just a massive favorite? Like, is it twenty to one you're going to win? Was it fifty fifty? How how big in, how how big a favorite were you in some of these early fights? Yeah, it's it's, it's a good question because people who don't understand the sport when you turn professional. And you're a bit of an amateur star like I was. I wasn't a major star because I never won a, an Olympic gold medal. And I was, I was not really a, a, a massive name, but I was still a big enough name because I'd been on the BBC channel in England, which is quite a, it's a terrestrial television channel. So quite a few million people had seen me box as an amateur, but I was a world championship bronze medalist. That's not like being an Olympic champion or anything like that. You don't get the big accolades like Anthony Joshua did. Right. Um, yeah, so, I, said, I had uh, Audley Harrison on recently as well, a good buddy of mine. Who, yeah, he was uh, an o- Olympic gold medalist. I, yes. I trained alongside Audley Harrison. There's, there's pictures of me on the Instagram and on my Twitter with Audley. He's, he's a nice yeah. guy, but he's, he's not got the heart. He's, he's like the lion out of the Wizard of Oz. Um, he, he's big and strong, but you know he's not, he's not a fighting man, in my opinion. I know he won an Olympic gold medal, but in the professional ranks, I don't think he's mean enough or nasty enough, and I don't think he had the confidence either that you need you need to believe in yourself as a pro, and um, or every sport really. You need to believe in yourself. I just, I just think he lacked belief, and already uh, it was a good talent, and he was a top amateur, but he, he didn't have the heart for the professional rankings. And um, yeah, I, I, I can't actually remember what your question was, but sorry, <laughs> yeah, I interrupted you. I, was, I guess I was asking what what the odds were early on. Oh, so sorry, the odds, yeah. So when when you turn professional, your first three, four, five fights, maybe even your first ten fights, you're expected to win. So you're put in against guys that are what we call journeymen. So there'll be guys that have probably had, I don't know, 70 professional fights, which is a, a massive amount of fights, but they've probably got more losses than they've got wins. So my pro debut was against Michael Pinnock. He was quite a tough, strong, durable guy from Birmingham. And he probably had his amateur career. What was his career, What was his record? Does it say on there? No, it just says one and a half. If you click on Michael Pinnock and have a look at his record, you'll see that he's probably got more losses than wins. And, it's um, interesting because I can't click on him. Yeah, there's a few guys like this. First one I could click is uh, Paul Bunsen, but these other yeah, guys. Paul Bunsen. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. so anyway, I go into the ring, a massive favorite, probably like I don't know, a fifty to one favorite. Oh wow. Early yes. on, but that soon that soon chart that soon stops because my twelfth fight was for the Commonwealth title, and that's that's a tough fight for me. That was Charles Adamo, That should say was that my twelfth fight, Charles yeah. Adamo? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and that was my first 12-round fight against the Commonwealth champion. And he was tough. You see there, he was unbeaten. Was he unbeaten at the time? What was his record? 11? Yeah, I think uh, it doesn't. I can't. It doesn't have. You you got the full rap sheet, man. I can't. Some of these guys, I can't. Uh, I can't get the history on them. But yeah, I so he was, yeah. he was a tough guy for me for my first twelve round fight. He was a tough guy, and he he took me the distance. I went twelve rounds on points. Um, I put him down in round eight, and then got confidence from that, and then finished strong and got the win. But it was a close fight, one sixteen, one thirteen on points, and I got the I got the I got the win, won the Commonwealth title. But you need you need to be tested on your way up to becoming world champion. You can't have a big run of easy fights and then expect to be able to jump in there with somebody who's world champion and and beat them. You have to have hard fights at some stage. I had about five or six kind of steady fights early on, and then I was straight in the deep end. I had quite a tough career to be honest. I fought I fought pretty much everyone. And when I became world champion, I've probably got one of the toughest resumes in British boxing in terms of people who I fought. So if you go up to my first world title fight. Jean Pascal. Even before then, I boxed um, I boxed Robin Reed. He was an ex world champion. Um, Tony Dodson, British level. Brian McGee was he was previous IBO champ. That was a tough fight. I broke my hand in round two in that fight. Then Robin Reed. My first world title fight was Jean Pascal. So from Jean Pascal, which is December two thousand eight, I then had a run of top level fighters. You can see there: Jermaine Taylor, Andre Durrell, Mikel Kessler, Arthur Abraham. Dan Koff Johnson, the road warrior from America. Andre Ward, unbeaten Olympic gold medalist. He beat me on point. Then Lucian Butte, he was unbeaten. My first steady fight, really, was, was Yusuf Mack. And he wasn't a bad fighter, but um, you, see, you can see there, 30, 30 and 2. Oh, no, that was my record. I can't see. I can't see. So Lucian Butte there, that was a fighter. He was unbeaten. Unbeaten Canadian, 33 and 0, 27 knockouts. Everybody thought he was going to beat me, and um, I became world champion again. I was so angry after I lost to Andre Ward, actually, that that win against Lucian Butte, I took it out on him and got a great win. But now, since, since becoming world champion against, against Pascal, I just had a run of really, really tough fights until, until I finished my career by knocking George Groves out in front of 80,000 people at Wembley Stadium. Yeah, this is, I want to, I got to, first, I got to ask you about, I want to talk about that, but the 26 and 0. Was this guy Mikel Kessler? So you had a perfect sheet going. You're going guy, to, yeah. Was this was this one? Was this a toss up, or was this one you were a favorite in? And, and what? Ha- who was this guy? No, that was that that was a fight that was in the Super Six. I, I entered a tournament called the Super Six World Boxing Classic, which was put on by an American promoter, uh, Gary Shaw and Dan Goosen. I think it was Dan Goosen, the late Dan Goosen, actually. And um, yeah, I boxed five of the best fighters in the world, so it was like. Fight after fight, top level, and um, that twenty-six and zero. I, I was twenty-six and zero going into the Kessler fight. Kessler was a tough geezer from from Denmark, and I went over to his hometown. Me and Kessler are very good friends now. We keep in touch. We talk probably once every month. We message each other all the time. He's a proper proper stand-up guy, real tough, strong, hard man, family guy. He's got his wife and his his three kids, and he's done so well out of the sport. But I boxed him in Denmark in the American tournament, but it was in Denmark. He's Danish. It was a close fight and he got the decision. I'm not saying that I won and then got robbed because on the night, I thought it was really, really close and the fight could have gone either way. And he got the win and he deserved to win because, you know, he beat me. But the fact that it was in his hometown, I kind of, I would have had to probably knock him out to win. I don't think I was ever going to win on points. If you look at the scorecard, the scorecard didn't reflect the fight. But to be fair to Mikel Kessler, he always said he would rematch me. So when the tournament finished, 
I had a couple of fights. I beat Lucian Butte. I beat Yusuf Mack. And my first fight then back on, on Sky Television, which was Sky Sports Box Office, a pay-per-view on Sky. That's Mikel Kessler up there. And I beat him in London in a close fight, another close fight. So he beat me in a close fight. I beat him in a close fight. And um, we left it 1-1. We always talked about maybe doing it again, but um, we both we both kind of had enough. And we, we like each other, so we didn't want to punch lumps out of each other anymore. Right. Yeah. How is that to compete with guys that you respect and like, like in poker, you know, and you got, it's kind of funny in dynamics, like home games, you go play with your buddies, you're, you're playing for blood, right? You're playing to win. You want to win the money. It's competitive. Yeah, we play. How is it if a guy, you like a guy versus a guy that you just genuinely don't like, how does that dynamic play? And does it make it easier to whoop someone if you, uh, if you don't like them? I think it does make it easy if you don't if you don't like him and you don't know them. It can make it harder if you don't like him because you can start loading up and tensing up and trying to hurt them, and you you end up you end up showing what you've got coming instead of just relaxing. Like when I fought George Groves for the first time, he wound me up. He played a lot of mind games on me and he got inside my head. And mm-hmm. I was trying to knock him out, and that first fight was tough. I mean, I got put down in round one quite heavy, and then I got beat up for six rounds, and then I got the stoppage. I managed to stop him in round nine, I think it was. Um, but it was a controversial stoppage. The referee, um, a lot of people say, it shouldn't have been stopped. I think the fight should have been stopped because I was, I knew I was hitting him and I was hurting him, and he was, he was tired. His arms were down. His head was slumped over. And if I'd have had a couple of free hits on him, I think it could have done some serious damage. So the ref stopped the fight because he saw what he saw. But because it was controversial, that created the big rematch which we had at Wembley Stadium. But um, yeah, I mean, boxing's boxing's a subjective sport anyway. You know. People have got their opinions on who wins and who loses, and who, who deserves. That, that's your kid, not that's not mine. That's yours, right? Hold on one sec, my son. Uh, my son's my son's coming and fired up, man. Yeah, how many kids do you have? You have two or three? Three, three. Man, it's I, I got one, and I, it's it's a. I literally, yeah, this is my niece, but um, yeah, it's, we're uh, it's crazy, man. Kids are crazy. How uh, I lost my train of thought for a second, but it's interesting about George Groves. How do you so you back to back? That's not really normal, right? Because that was like that was uh how, how that was only nine uh seven months or eight months difference in time. So how does that yeah, like that was the next part? Well, well, the first part which I said it was close. Well, it wasn't close early on. He was actually he was beating me up quite bad for the six or seven rounds. He put me down in the first round with a big fight, a big punch, and I hit the canvas in round one. Yeah, go on. Sorry, it's chaos. I got, it's chaos, man. My uh, my wife's away, and I'm, I got nannies, and I'm 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 I'm, a, I'm daddy daycare. It's a little, it gets a little out of control. So, so the second fight. I'm sorry. So you, you the TKO. You talk about re a rematch going. Yeah, the first fight though. The first fight was really close. I got put down in round one, and then I um I then managed to get the stoppage. I managed to beat him up in round. Was it eight? Was it round eight? I think it was round eight. And the right. referee jumped. The referee jumped in and stopped the fight, and it was controversial. All the crowd was booing. Everyone was moaning, saying the fight should have carried on, and the fight probably could have carried on. But I just think if it had carried on, George Groves would have got badly hurt and knocked out. That's what the referee thought, so the referee stopped the fight. But anyhow, it, it created this big controversy. Go on, it, sorry. What was the attendance in that? So you're in uh, Manchester in an arena like Manchester, probably about. 17, 18,000. I think it holds about 20. It was full. The place was full, but yeah. as and, full and as it could be. 
And then uh, Wembley. So then there's 80,000. How did this get hyped up to be this this type of... Uh... Was the, thing. The, first fight, the first fight was close. I got put down in the first round. Everyone was moaning about the stoppage, saying the fight should have gone on. I was like, no, the fight was stopped correctly. The referee did a great job. But it just captured the public's imagination. And, and because me and George Groves genuinely didn't get on with each other, we had genuine needle. He didn't like me. I don't like him. So the fight just escalated. It, it, it was insane. It got out of control. And then... Eddie Hearn, the promoter who promotes um, Anthony Joshua now, he decided, you know what, this fight needs to go to a stadium. And I'm like, really? Would this fill a stadium? And it did. 80,000 people at Wembley Stadium. And that was my last fight. And um, I made sure I was properly prepared for it. I trained correctly. I did everything I needed to do to make sure I got the win. And yeah, I, I knocked him out and it was a great stoppage. Great win. I got to ask too about boxing because it's sort of like with poker, you know, other other athletes, other sports, they retire, people come back. How do you know when it's time? You're, you're on top. You just win this 80,000 fight at Wembley Stadium. You're on. You've won now five in a row. You're fighting really tough fighters. How, how do you just say, I'm good? How do you walk away and say, all right, let's, that's it for me? You know, it's never easy, but I was fortunate. Not many fighters make the kind of money enough to retire on and, and be financially set up. So I had that, I had that privilege because the fights were sky pay-per-view and there was sold out venues. Um, but physically more so than the monetary side, because I could have gone on and earned more money. And you know, we all need more money. We can all spend it, you know, but I've been quite frugal with my money. I've, I've invested in property, which I've done since I even, before I even turned professional, I was, I was investing in property portfolio. Cause I've always been interested in taking an old house and knocking it about and redeveloping it and making it into a nice place to live and then renting it out. So I've been involved in property for over 20 years. My first, I bought my first house when I was about 19 years old um, and I didn't turn professional until I was 25. So I've always kind of been quite, quite smart in the property game. Um, and now my older brother manages my properties and looks after all the tenants and we do new builds and we do all sorts of stuff. Um, but to answer your question, my body was physically breaking down. So the training camp for the Mikel Kessler rematch was tough because I've had a knee operation on my ACL. I'd had various cortisone injections in my elbows. I'd had two operations on my right hand because I broke my hand on somebody's chin a couple of times. You know, So you know, physically, I kind of had enough, but I pushed myself through that first Grove fight. And then because it was so controversial, I kind of had to fight again. I thought, I can't leave it. Even though I won the fight, a lot of people thought it was a bad stoppage. So I had to set the record straight. So I was kind of forced into fighting Groves again. And I pushed myself through a 12-week training camp with injuries, my lower back, my elbows, my hand. I was, I was struggling to do the weights. I mean, I've been, I've been 168 pounds since I was 19 years old. And I'm now 36 years old, still, still weighing in at 12 stone, um, 76 kilo, 168 pounds. So it was difficult for me to stay at that weight. So when I, when I was training for the rematch with Groves, during the training camp, when I woke up every morning and my back was sore and I, I had to put my running shoes on and go out for a six-mile run, I told myself before every run and before every sparring session and before every strength and conditioning session and every time I was looking at food that I couldn't eat for, for three months, I was telling myself, this is the last time you're going to do this. Just get through it. Just do it. Come on, push yourself. Because it was that bad. I was literally on the brink of, of needing to stop. I was like... I was salutate together, literally. I had, I had duct tape around my elbows. I had bandage around my hands. My, my ankle was sore. My lower back was sore. And I got myself through the fight knowing that it was the last time I was going to do it. Don't get me wrong. I was fit and strong. And I performed and I got the knockout. But 
it's not so much the fighting for me. I love boxing. I love it. I love being in the ring and competing and fighting. I just love it. There's no better feeling than even when I lose. Even I've lost two fights as a professional. But I still enjoyed the fight. I mean, Andre Ward beat me. He was Olympic gold medalist, unbeaten as a professional. He retired undefeated. He'd not lost a fight since he was 12 years old. But I enjoyed the challenge. You know, I was in there thinking, I might just get this guy. I might catch him. I might knock him out. He was too good for me. He was too quick. He's very skillful. He holds a lot. He's very, he's a spoiler. He's not very good to watch. But I, I, I accepted the challenge. I was looking forward to getting in there and testing myself. And I lost the fight, but, you know, well, it's a boxing match. You know, it's not a big deal. I, I've never been knocked out in my life. Never been knocked out. So I don't go in the ring and worry about getting hurt or getting knocked out. I just worry about getting beat. And, you know, I lost a close fight to Andre Ward. I lost a close fight to Mikhail Kessler, which I avenged. I enjoy it. But towards the end of my career, literally, I was, I was, I was injured. I felt old. I was only 36, but I felt old. Like I say, my Achilles tendon, my back, my hand operations, my knee, my, my knee operation, my elbows have been full of cortisone injections. And I was yeah. like, you know what? I've made enough money. I've got, I've got young children. I've got young children. And this, this isn't football or tennis. You know, if you're playing football and you, you lose a bad game, you lose 5-0. Or if you're playing tennis, you lose three sets for love. In boxing, if you have a bad day in the office, you go to hospital, you know. It's, and if you've got kids, you're not just thinking about yourself. You can't be selfish. You've got to think about your family. So after that Wembley win in front of 80,000 and the payday I got and the fact that it was such a big accolade and it was a rematch that I won and I was world champion, I just thought, you know what? This is my this is my signing off fight. This is the this is this it's is where I need to be. Yeah, I need to be strong now. Yeah. It's like the end of Rocky One when when he, he you know no so yeah so so Rocky Two sorry Rocky Two when he beats Apollo Creed in the rematch and then Adrian his wife comes in and 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 they come together in the ring and it just it all comes to the peak of the mountain and then then it ends. That's like the perfect ending. So for me, Wembley Stadium in front of that many people. Um, in a rematch that, that not many people thought I could win. A lot of people thought I was going to get beat. I just thought, you know what? 36 years old, I'm done. I'm absolutely done. And don't get me wrong, I've been tempted to come back. There's been options, there's been opportunities. And I've been, I've been chomping at the bit thinking, one yeah. more, one more, one more. But, you know, I, I've been saying that since I was 36. I'm 43 years old now. So if it was going to happen, it would have happened already. Um, so I'm quite happy now. Yeah, it's a, it seems like a great way to go out. You know, uh, David uh, David Hay, also a buddy of mine. He's he we've done a podcast and we chatted. I think that's one of the hardest things in anything, right? Sports to leave when you yeah. when to leave. So it is when you get to get on a, a stage, a, skept, a spectacle like that, and go out on top. That is uh, is kind of nice to be able to do that. Hundred um, percent. Well, boxing boxing is known for retiring a lot of people. Like the the, the sport retires the fighter. The sport dictates when you end. I retired, I retired boxing. I retired from the sport. I didn't get told to retire. I didn't lose a fight, get knocked out and, and had to retire. Like you mentioned David Hay there and he's really good friends of mine. I speak to David Hay probably every other day. Um, I've been holiday to Jamaica with him. Me and him came through the amateur ranks. So when I won that bronze medal in the world championships in Belfast, me and David were side by side, fight after fight. He won the silver medal against the, um, against the Cuban heavyweight Orlando Solis. And I went and um, won the bronze medal um, like... 10 minutes later. So we've been buddies through the whole amateur career and then through the whole pro ranking. So we're good friends. But David Hay ended up coming back at retirement to feed that hunger or to earn some more money. And I don't know if you saw his last two fights against Tony Bellew, but, you know, he got knocked out and beat up quite bad. And, you know, that's, that's not how I want to go out. I never wanted to get knocked out or beat up and finish 
you know, like a beaten man. Like Muhammad Ali had too many fights at the end of his career and, and, and lost. And I think it damages you. It's no good for you. Mike Tyson fought on too long, got beat up. So yeah. Lennox Lewis got out at the right time. Lennox Lewis scraped through a win against Klitschko and he thought to himself, you know what, I'm too old now. I need to leave it alone. There's so many fighters don't know when to quit and they, right. they need saving from themselves. But I had a great coach, Rob McCracken, and my body was feeling aching and I thought, I'm not a greedy person. I don't need to fight anymore. I don't need to be risking my life, my life and my health just for more money that I can't spend. So I made the decision to retire and I'm really happy with my decision. But like I said, I still do think about it. I still do think one more, but it's not going to happen. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, is there a movie? I mean, you mentioned Rocky too, because in poker there's rounders. That's sort of like the Holy Grail, the boxing movie that, or I'm sorry, the, the movie that a lot of people got into poker with, they're really loved. Is there, is there a movie in, in boxing one that stands out for you? That's just like touches you or really inspired you? You know what? You know, all the Rocky movies, I just think every single Rocky movie is amazing. The first Rocky movie was, was like a million to one shot. Rocky Balboa fights Apollo Creed, the champion, and he comes close, he, he hurts him, but he loses, you know. And then Rocky two, he then, he then fights him again and gets the win, and, and he makes some money, and he's like, he's, he's living the life now, goes out and buys a new sports car, and he's got a new leather jacket, and he, he marries Adrian. And then the third fight is, is Club Alain. He's got to fight Club Alain. Mr. T, right? You, know, you remember Mr. T from the 18th, obviously he's big in America. So yeah. that you can relate to all of the films. Rocky Four was the Russian, Dolph Lundgren. I mean, it was like the Russian that was on steroids and it was big and strong and he killed Apollo Creed. Then Rocky was on a revenge mission. And yeah. then you got Rocky Five, Tommy, Tommy Morrison. And then Rocky Six, you think, hang on, he can't make any more movies. And every single movie, you can relate to boxing, the way it's written, the way, the way it's filmed. I love all of the Rocky movies. I think my favorite Rocky movie, my favorite boxing movie is Rocky Two. But um, I think there's a lot of Rocky films, all them six or seven Rocky movies. I think I, they're I great. Like the new one, the new one, Apollo Creed or whatever, the, 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 the yeah, movie. Creed. That- I mean, t- Tony Bellew played in Creed. I mean, that was also good. It was, it was Apollo Creed's son, Adonis, and he boxes, and Rocky Balboa actually trains him. And yeah, that was, that was even watchable. I mean, it, I don't think it can do any more now. I think that's the yeah, end. That's, that's cool. they've, they've had a good run for sure. Um, I think they've had seven of them. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty strong uh, franchise yeah. series. Uh, what, what, how did you get into poker? We've talked a lot about boxing. We're both members of Party Poker. You know, obviously, an amazing team. Uh, you're an ambassador. How did, wh- where does the poker come into play for you? Uh, for for how, how did you get tied up with Party Poker and, well, and into poker? Well, it's quite interesting because I, from the age of 14, I, I moved into a pub. So my mom and my stepdad, they got a pub in a place called Newark, which is 20, 20 miles outside of Nottingham. So I moved into a pub in Newark and I learned to play. I learned to play pool. So I'm, I'm still quite good at pool and snooker. I, I enjoy snooker. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm friends with a couple of snooker players in England, a guy called uh, Michael Holt and Ronnie O'Sullivan. I've met him a few times. Ronnie O'Sullivan's amazing. Steve Davis, he's, he's looked after by the same agent that looked after me. Barry Herner does all the boxing in, in Matchroom. He's best friends with Steve Davis. So I learned to play pool. I learned to fight in pubs because there's a lot of fighting back there and I was only 15, 16, 17 but I can remember I was in pubs from the age of 15, 14, 15 right up until about the age of 21, 22 and I was always fighting. I didn't like fighting on the street. I don't want to be involved in fights but when you ring that last bell order and people want another drink you say, listen, that's it mate, I'm not serving you anymore and if someone's had too much drink and then they get leery and loud and my brother's there and before you know it you're trying to chuck people out of the pub and you, you end up having a fight. You end up like ironing somebody out or getting punched up yourself but it's just 
it's just a way of life back then. It's changed a lot now. So I learned to I learned to fight, I learned to play pool, and I learned to play poker in pubs. And that's right. what I do now. I play poker and golf in my spare time. Um I play sorry, I play golf. I play golf and pool in my spare time and I play poker virtually full time now. And obviously I've made a career out of fighting. So it's quite interesting that the pub life and growing up in pubs actually taught me that. So poker was introduced to me in um one of my first pubs, so the Plowing in Newark, and then when we moved back to Nottingham, they used to always have a poker night. I don't think it was strictly legal, but it wasn't as frowned upon as it is now. So just playing a bit of cash poker with some of the some of the punters in there, they'd have a drink, there'd be six or seven sat around the table, it'd be ten pounds, which was quite a lot of money back then, ten pound buy in, and everybody would be playing with the twenty Ps and fifty Ps and pound coins. And it'd go on for like three, four hours like poker matches like poker can. And I was involved in them. So I was working behind the bar as well as playing the poker. So I'd sit in and then my brother would work and then we'd swap. And with, um, yeah, I, that's how I was introduced. But I, I got introduced into poker in Nottingham with Rob Young and Dust Till Dawn. And I just did a promotion down in, at the Dust Till Dawn Casino in Nottingham. And that's how I got started um, with party poker. Rob Young did a partnership with um, B-Win Party, the party poker. And yeah, I'm good friends with Rob Young. And he kind of introduced me to the, to the guy, Tom Waters. I'm not sure Tom Waters is there now anymore at Party Poker. Right. Um, but... Yeah, I did a couple of promotions with them and I ended up being ambassador. But I've played quite a lot of tournaments now and I've played a lot more, especially of late, online. I've been online quite a lot, enjoying it actually as well. It's, it's time consuming. It's frustrating. And you, you can do nothing wrong in poker and not get the win, which is, you know, the bad beats is the hardest thing for me to accept because in, in boxing, in boxing, you train, you, you get up, you do your morning run, you do your strength and conditioning, you do your sparring. You tick all the boxes. You do everything right. Do your diet correct. Get your sleep. Don't cheat on runs. Make sure you run hard. Don't cut corners. And, you know, 99 times out of 100, you will get the result because you've, you've put in the work and the dedication and the sacrifice, and then you get the result you want. But with poker, the one thing that does get me and does really annoy me and really hurt, I do nothing wrong. I put the money in when it needs to go in. You know, I don't want someone to see the flop because I've got the pair of aces. I need them to fold quick before they hit a trip or something. Yeah. And maybe I tease it and then peel it a little bit and then think, right, before the turn, let's get it in. And then someone's got a pair of tens and I've got aces. And you know what's going to happen. You know, he's always going to hit a ten on the turn or the river. And that, that is the hardest thing to swallow. Like you've got two pairs and someone gets a full house. And you've got to understand in poker and you have to understand it. The sooner you understand it, the sooner you learn in poker that you're going to have to take the rough with a smooth. And eventually the percentages will, will catch up with you. Right. Um, and you will get yours. So you will eventually win something big as long as you play enough. But right. it's enjoying the journey. And, and I enjoy the journey. I Don't get me wrong. I've been frustrated. I've been up, since, I've been up at 4 o'clock in the morning on a two-day tournament thinking, I'm in the bubble. I'm, I'm just about to burst into the bubble and get paid. And, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in an argument with a hand that I shouldn't be in an argument with. I think I'm going to get a flush or I think I'm going to hit the trips or whatever. And I'm waiting for a card and the card doesn't come. And someone else gets their card and it's 4.30 in the morning and you, you're just so, yeah. I'm, being, I'm being polite, I'm choosing my words carefully, but you're very, very annoyed. Yeah. You have to dish yourself off and come again, mate. That's what you have to do. 
the variance is a real thing. It's, it is, it's, it's different. You know, like you're mentioning it, you got to kind of get, get used to it because it's a, when you're some, when you're in the sport or doing something that you have a lot of control over, and then you realize that the luck, there's an element of, uh, you know, the element of, of a luck in this, and it can be a little bit uh, mentally, mentally challenging. I know we got the KO series on party poker right now. There's a million dollar one K this weekend. Are you going to be, are, will you be playing that? Do you, what, what's the type of turn? I think that's the one I'm playing this weekend, yeah. The Million Dollar KO Series. Looking forward to it. Yeah, that, that's going to be a fun one. I know you actually do play on your phone as well because Party Poker got the new app. They've got a – it's a much – Yeah, I love the new app. Yeah, it's super, super clean. Do you play more on a, on a PC or do you like to play on your phone? Like what's your normal – because you got kids, you're bouncing around. Are you mobile and just sort of running around yeah. the house in a tournament or do you sit down and do this? Do you get out of your desk Listen, and – depends. It depends what mood I'm in. Depends what mood I'm in. If I want to sit down and concentrate, and and, and I'm I, I prepare for a poker match. Sometimes like a boxing match. People people who don't play poker will say, "What's he talking about? What's he on about now?" But I like to make sure I've got food in my stomach. I like to make sure I've got a drink next to me. I don't I don't drink alcohol, so I, I like to make sure I'm hydrated. I'm concentrating. There's no distractions. So I lock myself in my office, get on my iMac, and play on my PC and play properly. Sit there, focus, sit up, so my back's not hurting. I'm not aching. There's no distractions. And then I know I can run deep into a tournament. But on the flip side of that, the casual side, you know, the more non-serious poker player, I love getting my handheld phone in my hand, holding it up, and I can play with one hand, and I can chuck, I can chuck eggs, and I can chuck tomatoes, and I can, I can chuck turds at players to wind them up. And I can watch the television, or I can look after my kids, and I can still play because you get time in between hands to still play when you're on your phone. So the recreational poker for me, I enjoy for a quick couple of hours, maybe on a cash game or a small tournament. Um, but when I'm taking it seriously and I'm in, a, I'm in a tournament that's potentially going to be a big winner, I sit myself in my office and I expect to run deep in the tournament because I'm taking it deadly serious. And I sit on my mat and I concentrate, I focus, and you know, I'm looking at what people are doing and I'm looking at the hands they're folding with and looking at what bets they're making. I'm taking notes and I'm looking at hand history and all sorts, doing it properly. Um, right. But no, I love, yeah, I love yeah. the app. I love the app. You got two. You got two. Two ranges. You're you're, you're dialed in. You're ready to rock, or you're or you're, you're multitasking. I think that's uh, exactly. it's nice. Sometimes, right? sometimes yeah. I'm lying in bed, or I'm in a waiting room waiting for someone, or I'm lying in bed and I can't sleep. So I get the phone app up, and I just click on that, and I'm there just chucking eggs and chucking tomatoes as well. You throw eggs, and, and a lot of the time you can get the pigeon, and that can land on top of someone's head, and you can chuck a yeah. third at him, or you can, you can get the fishing reel and reel him in. So I like to do quite a lot of bluffs. I don't want to give my game away here. But sometimes yeah. what I do is I've got a really good hand. And then what I do is I start goading the opponent because I want him to call. But I want right. him to think I want him to fold, you know. So I change my play. But by getting a little fishing wheel in, like you're fishing him in, he's thinking to himself, is he fishing me because he's got a good hand? Or, is he, or is, he, is he buffing me because he's actually got a rubbish hand? But I feel like on the app, on the app, because you can do that, because you can chuck an egg at them or do the fishing wheel at them, you get them thinking... And that's the closest to, for me that you can get to a live game. Because I love to sit around the table and look, look into the eyes of the opponent if they're not wearing sunglasses and try and pick up a read. And all the top, all the top poker players, as far as I'm concerned, like I take a bit of inspiration from Sam Trickett and people like Rob Yong in Nottingham because they can read players. But they're, like, they're very good at live cash games, which is a totally different game to playing. It's the same game, obviously, the same rules. The people who play poker professionally understand that a tournament is different to a cash game it's a different total different strategy and 
you need to see the players around the table, which, you know, we're not getting that now because of the COVID situation. And right. I do miss the live tournaments. I love to sit around the table, the seven, eight, nine people on the table, and you get a read off them. You see how the bet, you see the bet impacted. You see how big the bets are. You can talk to them. I love talking to the opponent, asking them, have they got a high pair? What they're doing? They're waiting for a flush. What you got? You got a pair of ace? You got ace king? Is it suited? And, you, and they're looking at you. They don't want to talk. Some of them talk. Some of them don't. But I love the banter. And I love that face-to-face. It's similar to me. Like when I was boxing and I go to a press conference and I talk to my opponent and I say, listen, you've not fought anybody like me. You've never been hit on the chin this hard. And I'm talking to the opponent, trying to get inside his head. And, you know, poker for me is the closest thing to boxing that I've had since I've retired from boxing because I actually get that adrenaline. I get that nervous feeling when I'm playing live poker. Yeah. Whether whether I've got a big hand and I want somebody to call because I want to take some more chips off them or whether I'm on a big bluff and I want them to fold. Whatever the scenario is, when it's extreme, I'm telling you, that gets the blood pumping, it gets the heart, it gets the heart beating, and it's a really, really nice feeling, that adrenaline. I really enjoy it. So that's my, that's my adrenaline fix, if you like, but safer, safer than boxing because I'm not getting hit. Well, no one's hit me yet on a poker table. <laughs> For sure. Uh, and, and what about studying? Have you done, like, what type of – you know, I know David Hay. Actually, I was in that documentary. I did a little bit of work with him studying. What what uh what is your uh, your appetite for work on um, on poker? Have you done a little bit of reading? Have you done a bit of a uh, bit of bit of talking with some guys? Like, oh, there you go. That's a UK legend right there. All right, that's a good that's a good book. You know what? I've been I've read a couple of books and. I've watched, I find that I learn more. I mean, you can read stuff and you can go into the maths of it and you can look at, you can look at strategies and percentages so you know where you are. How much money is in the pot? What percentage have you got of hitting your flush or hitting your pair or trips or quads? Yeah. And so I kind of know if it's the value for me, if I'm getting value on the bet. I understand poker now. I understand when you've got the chip, you know, when you're in position and if you're under the gun or wherever you are on the table, will determine you know how strong you are depending on how big your bet is but i find that watching poker i find that actually looking at live play and watching watching how people play hands and just sitting down and enjoying it i find i learn more from that i don't know looking at different scenarios like i'm amazed at how some of the good players fold how do they fold two pairs or how do they fold trips because i find it difficult to fold a good hand but all the top players all the best players in the world they kind of know when to fold and they know when to actually have a punt at it. And um, that always amazes me. And I think the top, top players, they, they get reads. They can read players and they kind of understand the thought process of their opponent. And they're kind of, I'm not saying they know exactly how it was, but there was, there was a tournament in Nottingham. And I can't remember the name of the girl, the lady from Holland she was. She won, she won the millions. And then, you know, a week later, she went and won another tournament. I thought to myself, that's not luck. You don't win two tournaments. Look, when I was in the Caribbean with, with, with Bustle Dawn and Party Poker a couple yep. of years back b- before the COVID situation, the same guy that won the main event won the side event. He won the high roller buy-in. And I'm thinking, he knows something that I don't know because he, he's doing something. Whichever book he's read or whichever video he's watched or whatever strategy he's got, he knows something that I don't. He's a quality player. I can't remember the name of the guy. I saw him at the airport. Actually. I took a picture with him. I think yeah. I took it on my Instagram, but it was quite a young lad. But it, it fascinates me. 
the girl talking about Maria Lampalopoulos, like the girl from uh, she did well at Dust Till Dawn, and then she won. She's won a million dollars a few times, right? And like you're saying, you know, that's yeah. that's the cool part. Like there is luck, but it's a very skill driven game, and and there is a yeah. lot of work you can do. And I think it was, I think Jake Cody said to me, "Is that the right name, Jake Cody?" Yeah, he's that's, as well. So I, so I sat another little like an afternoon with him at Dust Till Dawn in Nottingham. And I said to him, yeah, but there's so much luck involved in poker. Surely don't you just get wind up because, you know, luck, luck can beat you. And he said to me, he said, look, so poker is 90% luck, but on the day. He said, on the day, it's 90% luck. But on the year, on the year, it's 90% skill. And I didn't understand that to start with. And then I thought to myself, hang on, let me think about it. So you can sit down on the day and play anybody, you know, and you can beat them. I could beat Rob Young at Dust Till Dawn on a cash game. I could sit down with Sam Trickett, who's brilliant. I could sit down with that, that lady who just mentioned who won the million and maybe beat her on a couple of hands. But over the longer period of time, the longer you play with these top players, the more they're going to understand how you're playing. And eventually, then percentages and that look runs out and you're going to get beat. And you're going to get beat in the spots where the ones that make the difference, where they mop your chips up and they send you home, send you packing. And that's the difference between, between good poker players an exceptional poker player, top-level players. And um, I'd love to know the art of being able to read somebody like they read them. Maybe they're just playing it that much and maybe they get to know the players and they understand what they're up to and they get it. But it fascinates me. It really does. But I'll keep trying until the day I die. I'll keep playing. I'll keep trying. As many times as I get beat up, I'll just keep coming back for more because I enjoy it. When I sit down around a table or sit down in front of my Mac, and I've got the cards being served up, being dealt up, and I've got a stack of chips. I just, I don't know, I feel excited. I feel excited, like genuinely excited. And I, every single time I sit down, I believe I can win. And I do win because I knock loads of players out and I go quite deep into most tournaments. So, you know, I might come 200 and uh, win nothing, but there's, there's 1,200 people behind me that have been knocked out before me. So, you know, that's, for me, that's a win. But right. um, the right. big one keeps, keeps evading me. I, I need the big one. I need the but, big yeah, one. You know, to, to your point, Don, what you say, though, but I, we've actually, you know, we were in, uh, it was at Dust Till Dawn, I think, last year, right before the pandemic started. We, we were mm. doing some stuff there. I've seen you at Bahamas. But it is all about variance and, and, and uh, getting repetitions in. You're not, you haven't won a big one because you're not playing that much. Look at look at guys, the guys' names you're mentioning. They're playing the full circuit. They're traveling. They're playing a lot Absolutely, of events. Yeah. It's hard no, to just exactly. get in. You know, there are guys, though, that do it like you, though. Those are the ones that, you know, they come in, they play a couple events a year, and they, they rip off a, ma- a massive win. And, you know, that's a great style to have as well. But yeah, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. It doesn't, doesn't, yeah. often, doesn't often happen. Carl, I know you've got a, you've got a, 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 a schedule to, to attend to here. With the, you got to get moving pretty soon. We are giving away a $111 one-shot ticket, which I will do the, the uh, retweet giveaway for. But uh, do we have time for a few questions, or do you got to zoom out of here pretty quick? No, no, we're fine because, my, my, you know, I, I, I'm okay, actually. I'm okay. Where I need to be is quite, is quite relaxed, so I can, I can rock up a little bit late. I can, I can rock up fashionably late and still be okay. So don't worry. Let's do what we need to do. Let's get some. Well, we got a lot, man. There's a lot of people that want to know, so I, we're not going to get to all these. But we'll uh, we'll we'll yeah, take. We can never go through all the questions on these. We always try and do the best we can. Like when I do my podcast, you know, people send the questions in, which we appreciate. But you have to understand that we yeah. can only answer so many of them. But for sure, yeah, we, we we pick the good ones up. We don't we don't pick the silly ones. Yeah, we'll we'll focus in here. And, and tell me about your podcast. What is that? You have a podcast that goes is uh, on where does that air yeah. and what is it about? Exactly, it's a boxing podcast. It's called on fighting and as you know I'm a, um, I'm a Sky Sports commentator and boxing analyst 
expert analyst for world titles. You know, I'm a, I can call myself an expert analyst. I think I've that is. Yeah, what sure. got there? Let me just have, let me just grab something really quick. Okay. There you go. That looks like an expert to you, doesn't it? Oh, there it is. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's serious, man. I, I, I would trust that. I trust that. All right. That's actually an honorary honor degree to say that I'm a. I'm, a, I'm an expert in boxing. So, yeah, so, you know, what was, what was we going to say? What was the talk? We're going to go through some of these questions. Oh, yeah, let's hit and let's knock into some of these questions. So, for, right off the gate, top, top three all-time boxers. What does that mean for you? Can you do you have a top couple that, that rattle off on your list? Top three of all time. Um, I, think, I think Mark Tyson has to be in there. Actually, he, he boxed recently, Roy Jones Jr. I know it was kind of too, too old men that shouldn't be fighting. But yeah. I've got so much respect for Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. I couldn't give that fight any stick at all because it's just two guys just revisiting some from, from when there was, you know, solid, probably the best fighters in the world. Mike Tyson, for me, was the ultimate fighting machine. Um, it was just, it was like an angry man who, who took that anger into the ring and was able to channel it correctly. And it was so powerful and strong and tough and vicious and intimidating. That, for me, that's the ultimate fighter. The ultimate boxer is the guy who's slick and skillful with hand speed and m- m- unbelievable, like God-given, talented ability, and that's Roy Jones Jr. So there's two of my favorite fighters right there and two totally different type of fighters. And then you've got, you've got people like Sugar Ray Leonard and Sugar Ray Robinson and Prince Nassim Hamid from England, who was a showman with his low-hole guard. I, I know he came over to America and got beat up by um, uh, Marco Antonio Barrera. I was, I was actually there. I spent my last 200 bucks on him uh, on a bet and lost. Uh, but that's just how it is but my, my top two favourite fighters are Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr and then people like Roberto Duran um, the tough nuts the hard man you know Mickey Ward and Arturo Gatti them type of fighters the tough solid fighters um, I've got so much respect for them but you can't the list can go on because there's so many good fighters Marvin Hagler Thomas Hearns all them fighters but I, I gotta I gotta ask you about this like nowadays what do you make of this when Mayweather and McGregor fight, and now there's crossover with Logan Paul, Jake Paul, these type of like, you know, kind of stunts, YouTubers fighting. Do you think this is good for the sport, for boxing, or do you think it's kind of a mockery of like really what's going on and, and this sort of trash? I think you want to take it for what it is. I think it is a bit of a mockery if you take it seriously because they're not proper professional fighters. They're, these are YouTubers getting in and having a bit of a swing up. I, I watched that KSI and Paul Logan and you know, they both had a go. You've got to give them respect because they got in there with the gloves and gum shields. They were punching each other. And, you know, it's, it's a tough game. But when you put somebody like Conor McGregor in with Mayweather, Conor McGregor, McGregor is a tough guy. He's, he, you know, he's a top fighter in the MMA world. He's not a boxer. He doesn't know how to throw punches correctly. His balance is all wrong. Um, you can't put him in the ring with somebody like Floyd Mayweather or anybody actually who's a top professional. Forget Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather is one of the best. He's one of the greatest of all times. Um, in terms of what he did when he was in the ring. It was amazing, unbeaten in 50 fights. I mean, so I don't like to see it. I don't like to see Floyd Mayweather in against Conor McGregor. It's not fair. I wouldn't like to see Floyd Mayweather in against Conor McGregor in the cage either, in, in mixed martial arts, because it wouldn't be fair the other way around. I think McGregor would get him into some headlock or leg clamp and he'd have him tapping out straight away because it's a different it's a different um, sport, totally different. Right. Um, but... It does bring it does bring a new audience to boxing. It gets people into the sport. So you know anything that brings more attention to boxing 
even though I don't fully agree with the, the fact that it's not proper boxing, I wouldn't say it's correct, proper fighting because these guys can't fight. They don't know how to box properly. They're swinging away. Their chin's in the air. The balance is all wrong. They're not delivering the punches correctly. And, you know, if they're going against a professional who knows how to fight, they could get seriously hurt, which is then bad for the sport. But, right. you know, they've got big gloves on, head guards sometimes. And I don't know, they don't punch that hard enough to cause any major damage because they can't punch correctly. Um, so, you know, nobody's been seriously hurt. And as long as nobody's getting hurt, then it's all good. It's all good as far as I'm concerned. I'm not going to write them off because they've still got bottle. They still have to get in the ring and they've still got bottle. Is the McGregor Mayweather was it, you know, because McGregor's such a big name and so popular, but that those odds, it was like five or six to one or something. It was probably more like 30 or 50 or 100 to one, right? Like, was that like yeah. a bet of your, I mean, is that just like a no brainer? Like, he's never losing, right? Unless Listen, I was sitting, I was sitting ringside working for Sky, Sky TV, the broadcaster did the pay per view in Britain. So I was commentating and judging on that fight, like judging for the, for the audience at home, not official judge. But right. I was commentating on that fight and, I was sitting there ringside and it was the first, probably the first 45 seconds or a minute of the first round, Floyd Mayweather looked down at me and smiled at me as if to say, because I know I've met Floyd Mayweather a few times. I had a chat with him about McGregor before the fight and he was saying to me, look, this is, this is, this is going to be a mismatch and it's going to be, and people don't understand. But he did what he did. He sold the fight. He made a lot of money and people wanted to see it. But in reality, that was a mismatch. That was totally a mismatch. And I know, May, I, know Mag, I know Mayweather made it a bit of a fight and stayed in there a little bit and took a couple of shots around the back of the head and took his time a little bit. But listen, they could fight 100 times and Floyd Mayweather would win 100 times. That's, that, that's the truth of that. McGregor would never have a chance of beating him because he's not a big puncher. He hasn't even got a puncher chance. But, but there you go. It captured the public's imagination. Mayweather is the money machine. Money Mayweather. And he probably made about $500 million. So fair play to him. But, you know. Yeah, it's, it's actually marketing genius. Like the, the fact to cross him over, right? To get these two big names into a thing. And, and they're just, they're laughing to the bank, you know? But it's kind of. Uh, if I would never come out of retirement to fight another professional fighter who's active and who's, who's currently doing well in the professional world. Because I know that at 43 years old, I haven't got the fitness, the punch resistance, and the, the, the ability to go 12 rounds. If you can't go 12 rounds, you, you're not going to be able to win. Um, but if somebody like Conor McGregor in the mixed martial arts world started to call me out, even now at 43, I'd say to myself, hang on a minute, I've got a real big chance here. I'm, like, there's, there's probably not much chance I'm getting beat. Even at 43, been out of the ring five years and don't do any boxing training, I'd still jump in with a current active, so if there's anybody out there, if there's any, if there's any mixed martial artists that fancy taking on the Cobra, give me a call. Drop me a line because I'm telling you now, mate, you've seen it with McGregor Mayweather. It's a mismatch. Right. Well, I mean, listen, I, these days, like I, with the YouTube and all this different shenanigans, like who knows, right? Yeah, anything's on the table. Uh, who, who knows what's going what's gonna to happen? So listen, we'll, uh, we'll send out the clip and, and maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe there's a, there's a bite there. That would, that would be... Yeah, I'm all regret saying that. <laughs> yeah, this could definitely it could definitely happen. Um, we uh, proudest what what's the uh, proudest moment of your life? Like obviously kids being married, this and that. But like I guess like in boxing, what which of those fights was it? The Wembley was it going out on top? What's your moment that you were like, or or is, was it a moment for you to to take a risk or you know something in your career where it was a match that you didn't know if you should take and you thought you were an underdog? What, what stands out? as like one or two of the, the most uh, memorable things of your entire career. 
Yeah, there's not there's not one out of because I box so many top fighters back to back. You know, I've been involved in in thirteen or fourteen world title fights since winning the title of Jean Pascal. I've got one of the strongest resumes of all time, um, especially in British in Britain. Um, there's some top fighters in America. Floyd Mayweather's record, for example, I mean, he fought everybody Mayweather did. But there's not many that come close to the resume that I've got and Mayweather's got in terms of fighting top-level fighters back-to-back. So because I box the best of the best, I've had some amazing nights. Now, my first world title fight against Jean Pascal was a night I'll never forget. It was in Nottingham, in my hometown, at the Castelletto Arena at the time, which is the local arena in the middle of my city where I was born and raised. So to win a world title against an unbeaten Canadian for the WBC world title. I mean, that, that's just a night I'll never forget. But I went on to defend that title in my very next fight against Jermaine Taylor, the former undisputed middleweight king. And that was in America, um, in Connecticut. And, you know, for my first world title defense to travel over to America and fight somebody like Jermaine Taylor. And in that fight, I got put down for the first time in my career in round three, I think it was. And I managed to stop the guy, stop Jermaine Taylor in the dying seconds of the last round. If I didn't stop him in the last round, I would have lost my title and I'd have come back to England with no belt. So that was a night I will never, ever forget. But then on from that, I went into the Super 6 World Boxing Classic and I boxed Mikel Kessler, um, Arthur Abraham, Ben Koff Johnson, Andre Ward, um, and then Lucian Butte. I mean, I lost to Andre Ward, so I was... I was titleless. I lost all my world titles. After losing to Andre Ward, my first, ti- my first fight back was jumping straight in the deep end with Lucian Butte for, for a world title. That nobody, I'm talking nobody except for me and my trainer, even, even people in my family didn't think I could win the fight. My best mate, I think he thought I could win the guy I was training with, my best friend Adam. But literally, there was a handful of people that thought I could go in there and win that fight. And I went in there and I didn't just beat him. I absolutely hammered him. I bashed him to bits for five rounds. This is an unbeaten Canadian with an IBF world title. And I went in there and absolutely smashed him to bits and became world champion again. That was back in Nottingham. Um, and, and after that, to beat Mikel Kessler at the O2 Arena in London in front of 20,000 and then fight George Groves once in Manchester, climb off the floor in round one and then straight into Wembley Arena, Wembley Stadium, sorry, in front of 80,000. I mean to finish my career like that. So I can't give any one of them fights that accolade of being the all-time best fight. But, you know, the Wembley knockout, that was special because that was the end of my career. And then avenging the loss against Kessler was special because he beat me. That was my first loss. And that was, that was hurtful. I know I lost. I lost. I was, I was proud and I was magnanimous in defeat. He beat me fair and square. And I lost my titles and it hurt me bad because it was the first time I lost as a pro. Um, so to get the... To get the revenge on that fight and, and, and get my belt back and beat Mikel Kessler in that rematch, for me, that was, that was that blemish on my record kind of scrubbed off. I lost to him, then I beat him in the rematch. But um, I'd have to say my, fight, my, my best fight of all time was probably the Jermaine Taylor stoppage in round 12. Think about it. I've gone over to America to fight Taylor as a new world champion. I beat Pascal for the WBC title. My first defense was against Taylor in America. And it was a massive risk. If you're a world champion, usually you stay at home and you defend your title in your hometown against a couple of easy fights and, you know, have it nice and comfortable and enjoy being a world champion for a couple of fights before you take a risk. Well, I went straight over to America and fought Bad Intentions Jermaine Taylor. And a lot of people was like, why is he going over to America to fight Taylor? He's going to get beat. And I nearly did get beat. But actually, in the dying seconds of the last round, I pulled out the stoppage. If nobody's seen boxing or anybody's watching this, 
I urge you to go on, just Google Carl Frotch, Jermaine Taylor, and have a look at that last round. And then I think you'll understand why that fight was so good and why that fight means so much to me. Because if I'd have lost that fight, that might have been the end of my career. I'd come back to England with no title, and I might have had no heart or no, no desire to go on fighting because that would have been such a bad loss. But actually, I won it in the dying seconds of the last round and then went on to achieve massive things. So, you know, I'd probably give that one the standout performance to me. Yeah, sometimes it's not the biggest, you know, sometimes it's something before the biggest thing that happens and maybe it wouldn't, you know, the butterfly effect or, or whatnot. So that was you know, a good question there from Mary. Thank you for asking. That's a, that's very, very interesting. What about poker? What What is your favorite uh, kind of hand? You know, aces are the best hand. Is there one you just have to play five, six suited or eight, nine or, or jack? What is, do you have a hand that you just love and you know it's maybe like a little bit, you know, not like the greatest hand, but you just, you get it dealt, doesn't matter. Raise, three bet, you're playing. Yeah, you know what? I hate aces. Aces, for me, they're only good for like winning small hands or losing big hands. They're not good for winning anything major because you get yourself into trouble. You think, oh, I've got aces. And all of a sudden, the flop looks good and you think, hang on a minute, someone's got a king, someone's got a, someone's got a queen, there's a flush out there. And there's no more aces on the table when the turn in the river comes and you're thinking to yourself, I'm in deep now. I've just, peel, I've just been peeling everyone. There's a big stack of pot in the middle and all you've got is a, is a pair. That's all you've got, a pair. So I don't like aces. My favourite hand that I like to have a bit of fun with and play is, is just because we, we used to play before the lockdown, we played a little cash game, like a friend, we say friendly cash game because it was only a one-two, so one pound, two pound, small, big. Don't get me wrong, they'd, they'd end up being like four, five, six hundred pound in the pot for some of the big hands, but nothing silly, like a five, ten or a ten, twenty, or when you start going hundred, two hundred, small, big, it, it gets ridiculous, it starts getting too much. So a nice, a nice friendly cash one-two and what we do is, if you've got seven dues mm. and you win with seven dues, yep. you get a bonus of everybody. So it's got me into playing the seven dues a little bit more, even in tournament play. So if I've got seven dues, I look at it and all of a sudden, I don't play the cards, I play, I play the pot and I play the position. And um, yeah, that's probably one of my, I don't, want to, I don't want to give that away to anyone who plays against me, but I can often be seen playing the seven dues. And luckily, a lot of the times, because of the way I play it, I never have to show it because everyone's folded. Yeah, that's doing a, big. the seven amazing game. It makes action. It makes it. Uh, it makes everything kick up and no, exactly. goes the whole time. You just you're ready for like every hand. You're suspicious, and it's a it's a it's a great game. All right, I got this question about the greatest parallels between poker and boxing. What do you believe are you could just say wow, like you couldn't believe when you started learning poker and, and getting more into the game that you're like I can use this from boxing, and this to me is very similar in this respect. Yeah, I mean, it only works in live poker when you're, when I say live, I don't mean online. I mean, when you're face to face around a table and that's the intimidation factor and the chat, like I mentioned earlier, being at a press conference or being at the way and you, you get to see your opponent for the last time the day before the fight and you stand on the scales, you make weight and then you come face to face. And I always talk to my opponent. I always tell him, I always tell him how confident I am. Well, I tell him, tell him how he's not good enough tell him his jab's too slow, tell him he can't hurt me. You cannot hurt me. If I'm looking you in the eyes and I'm saying to you, you cannot knock me out. I've never been knocked out in my career, amateur or professional. You ain't going to knock me out. I'm going to walk through your punches and I'm going to get to you and I'm going to hit you with this on your chin. I love telling my opponent because they're thinking about it. When they go to sleep that night, they're thinking about, I've got to face Carl Frotch tomorrow morning. I've got to face him and I've got to get in the ring with him, mano a mano, and I can't hurt him. So I always like to tell them, but when I'm sitting around a live poker table, not in an intimidating way or in a threatening way, 
I'll ask, tell my opponent and ask my opponent questions and talk to them. Ask them what cards they've got, even though they're not going to tell you. But you can ask them what cards they've got. Ask them if they've got a good pair. Ask them if they're on a flush. Have they got the ace king? You know, and I just love the feedback. Some people just sit there quiet and don't even move. Right. But I can see the heart beating in the neck. I can. Yeah, let, like, the, the Kasuf. You uh, you probably played with him over in the UK. He loves the chat. You know, are you familiar with William Kasuf? Have you the yeah. guy? Yeah, so yeah. He, he takes it to another level of talking. It doesn't stop, but uh, no, exactly. I, it can be annoying, but it's good because it works yeah. for him. Yeah, it's. it's I'm not. It's, I'm not to that extreme, but I do right. enjoy the chat and I enjoy the banter. And I, the, the the strongest relationship between boxing and poker, which was which was the question, is the adrenaline I get when I'm when I'm kind of fishing for information or I'm trying to because because I'm talking to them because I either want them to call or I want them to fold, depending on on whether or not I've got a good hand or I'm on a bluff. Because I'm on one or the other. If I'm betting big, it's because I've either got a good hand or I'm on a bluff. Yeah, it's not cool. because I'm just, yeah, I wouldn't be involved. I wouldn't be involved as deep as I am where I am talking to them. And um, yeah, I'm, 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 trying to, I'm trying to get some information out of them or, or trying to get them to do something. I've made some top players fold. I've made them fold. And I've made them call as well. <laughs> and I think to myself, I sit there and think to myself, yes, I got you there. I got you. You were going to fold. You were going to fold, but you called. And I love that. I love that. There's nothing quite like it. What would you rather play, like a $100,000 high roller uh, tournament, poker tournament, or a $100,000 buy-in cash game? Which two would get your blood flowing more? What do you like more, the high-stakes tournament or cash games? Competing? I think, you know what, I'm not a massive fan of the cash games because I don't like, I don't like gambling as such. I mean, I, I never, that's one thing about poker. I've never considered it to be gambling. Um, and, and, you know, I know people can, 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 can visit sites, gamble away, you know, and, and gambling can cause problems. It's worth it's worth mentioning while we're doing this podcast. You know, I'm not a big I'm not a big promoter of gambling in the sense where people ruin their lives gambling because I had it with my older brother. My older brother Lee is now seven years sober. He's seven years in sobriety. My older brother, um, and he was bad. He was gambling. He was drinking. He, you know, he had a rough time and he was gambling too much. But he was being silly on roulette tables and he was he was he was in casinos a lot, just chucking money away, chasing money. And poker for me, the reason I didn't mind playing poker is because you, you buy into your tournament, whether it's, whether it's 50 pound or hundred dollar buy-in or 5,000 or 25,000 high roller. That's the amount you've committed to buy in. And that's all you're going to lose. You're not going to reload. If it's a cash game, you can keep going and keep going. That's why I don't particularly like the cash games. I prefer tournament plays, but I like the high tournament buy-ins. I prefer like, I don't like the hundred and the hundred and nines, even though they're good fun and you can learn a lot and you, you learn. You learn the, the basics and the grassroots of poker, if you like, because you play a lot of hands and you're not too worried about calling certain things because you're not losing big bucks, right? But I do like, the, I do like say, a 5,000-pound tournament, five or 10,000 pounds or dollar tournament where you have to give the chips respect and you have to respect the players because it's a good lump of money and you've got potential good returns if you run deep. That would be my favorite. Sitting around a cash game amongst friends or amongst people I know on a, on a cash, I don't do that that often. That is enjoyable, but it's not something I would do on a weekly basis because it, it, I think it's dangerous. I think you can lose too much money and it's a different game because you can get bullied by someone who's got more money than you. So I like the tournament style, buy in five or 10 grand maximum, sit and enjoy it and try and get deep and try and get to the final table. For me, that's, if you can do that and get to a final table, you've achieved something and you know the game and you've played something, man, if you, if you do get to the final table and, and win something, you can really say to yourself, you know what, I'm a good poker player. I know what I'm doing. And it could take a lot of satisfaction from that. 
Yeah, it is. It is nice to a cash game. Like to your point, you can just reload, and it's 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 okay. But the the tournament actually has a result. Everyone gets the same parameter. You got this opportunity. You get to see where you stack up, and you can kind of measure it uh, in some degree, and, and have a have a result on it. Um, all right, let's take one or two more, and then I know you uh, you do it. You got to get uh, running, man. I appreciate this. Uh, this has been fun. Uh, what about sports? No You're from Nottingham, I uh, believe, right? You you Nottingham Force. Like, what's your you, you support EPL uh, a team a club? What what do you like to watch? What sports do you enjoy other than boxing? You know what? There's, there's a guy called Michael Holt who plays snow, snooker um, in. In Nottingham, he's, he's quite. A, he's from Nottingham, and he's, he's, he's a good snooker player. He won a little tournament last month, but he's, he's not in the Masters or anything like that. But he's, he's about to break through. He's a decent. He's a good player. So I do like snooker. I don't really get involved that much. The lives you can't go now and watch it. I used to go to the Crucible and watch watch the um, World Championships every year in, in Sheffield. Uh, but Nottingham Forest football. That's that's my club. Well, I say my club. That's my city's club. Nottingham Forest. We've also got Notts County, which is a, a lower lower league football club and they deserve they deserve a mention but Nottingham Forest really is a big club especially you know 1979-1980 they won the European Cup back to back so that was that was big wins and a lot of the, the old boys that played then they're at the local club I trained at David Lloyd um, and they play tennis and they get involved there and it's, it's good to see some of the old football players running around the tennis court still still enjoying themselves and also Nottingham Panthers which is the ice hockey I can be I can be quite often seen at the um Nottingham Panthers ice hockey at the arena, the ice arena in Nottingham. So Nottingham Forest, Nottingham Panthers, and um, Michael Holt, my friend, snooker player. That's about it, really. Very nice. And uh, and I got I want to ask you on your 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 match day preparation when you would walk out uh, to the ring. Did you ever get? Were you ever sick? Did you ever get nervous? Did you ever you know like? Did you have a routine? You use the rest of the night before? Did you drink coffee? Like what? What was like your day of? Uh, for a match because right they're at nighttime generally right they're at nighttime how yeah, do you usually quite late walk me through your, your day of, 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 well, you've, of already, you've already made the weight you make the weight the day before so you start to death all week and you make the weight you make 168 pounds smack on or an ounce under and then you can eat and drink as much as you want so you feel like you're going to explode when you go to go to bed on 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 the last sleep before the fight and then on fight day it's just about relaxing and staying confident and staying focused and concentrating but not not thinking too much about the fight because you've got all day you've got like from i don't know eight nine o'clock in the morning right until about 10 o'clock in the evening you know what i mean so you've got like 15 hours before you're in the ring so it's a long time to just so you just got to make sure you eat right a nice breakfast porridge and and a bit of fruit and then some more carbohydrates at lunch and then some more carbs a bit more pasta and that for dinner but then when you get over to the arena or the stadium as it was in my last fight it's just all about just just staying focused and concentrating and, and, and remain, just keep that belief because, you know, there, there's a saying that I like, come of the hour, come of the man. And in that last hour, that last two hours before the fight, you can talk yourself out of it. You can say to yourself, damn it, I'm nervous. Have I done all the training? What does sparring good enough? Is this guy better than me? Does this guy punch harder than me? And you've just got to, you've just got to make sure you focus and concentrate and keep believing in yourself. There's a reason you're at that arena. There's a reason you're world champion. There's a reason you are where you are and you've done all the training and you've, you've, you've cut no corners. Everything's gone perfect. And just keep reiterating to yourself because for me, I was very, very nervous. And mentally, it was always a battle to, to keep the nerves in check. Anybody who says they don't get nervous, as far as I'm concerned, they're lying to you because when there's big pressure on in any top level sport, but more so in, in an individual sport like boxing, golf, tennis, when you're on your own. There's no team. All right, I've got my coach, 
But when that bell goes, he climbs down the steps and gets out the ring. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I'm in that ring on my own. Um, I don't think there's any more more of a nervous feeling than than an individual sport, especially boxing, because you're in there and you're trying to you're trying to render your, your opponent unconscious, and he's trying to render you unconscious by punching you in the face as hard as he can. You know, now I've never been knocked out, but I've been hit on the chin a few times, and I've known about it. You know, I've been wobbled and dazed, and I've been down on the floor twice where I've momentarily blacked out, been asleep, then woke up when I hit the floor, and you've got to carry on fighting. I've been down twice in my career. I've got up both times to win. So on fight day, for me, it's just about believing in yourself and just keep telling yourself, keep reminding yourself that you're the best and why you're there. And it gets a bit re- repetitive, but it's nice to visualize. It's nice to visualize winning, visualize walking to the ring, doing the job, because if you believe something, you can achieve it. And if, if, if you diet yourself and you don't believe in yourself, nine times out of 10, you'll lose. I play table tennis in my, in my, my I call it my man shed in my garden. I've got table tennis darts, we play a bit of poker out there. And my older brother always turns up and he always beats me at darts. He always beats me at table tennis. Every single time I play him. And I don't believe I can win. I go into the table tennis thinking, I can't win, he's too good. And I never win. He always beats me. And I can't get it out of my head that my big brother's going to come and give me a beating in my own, on my own table tennis table. And right. um, I think I need to speak to somebody about that because I can't <laughs> get it out of my head. But with boxing, I, I drew a lot of confidence from my success and I, I drew most of my confidence in my preparation. I always made sure I never cut corners. I always made sure I did my running and I had my sparring. I did my strength and conditioning. So if I was supposed to do a thousand press-ups in a week, I'd make sure I'd done a thousand press-ups, make sure I did all my pull-ups, make sure I did all my runs. And um, I'd get into the ring knowing that, you know what, I've left no stone unturned here. I'm the best I can possibly be getting into the ring. Now it's all about self-belief. It's all about believing in it. And you know, that, that worked for me because I was, like I said, I was a nervous amateur and I was a nervous professional, but I used them nerves and I took energy from that adrenaline. I made it, I used it to my advantage. Very, very nice. And the, and the last question I want to ask you is about your team. You, you know, you, you're, you're married, you have your wife, you have three kids, you have uh, a manager, you had a coach. What, what goes into at the top level for someone in boxing and like yourself that you go through? How many, you know, do you have a nutritionist? Do you have a, a manager, a publicist? How, what does your team consist of? Uh, let's just take at the end, at the end of your career, at the, 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 down the stretch, like what does your full team consist of? Right at the end of your career, because through most of my career, it was just me and my coach, literally, Rob McCracken and me walking to the ring. And I obviously had a promoter, but I never really had big trust or belief in promoters. Boxing can be a bad business. And, you know, yeah. there's a lot of things that go off in the background and, Fighters don't get the money they deserve. They don't always get paid what they should get paid when they get paid. Um, and you don't really get sponsored in boxing until late on when you're a world champion. Um, so through most of my career, it was just me, Rob McCracken, doing the hard work, doing the graft, doing the grind, turning up fight night and doing the business. Then when I became world champion, I got a couple of belts and I started earning more money. I was fortunate because I trained in Sheffield and the in- English Institute of Sport, the EIS in Sheffield, I was based there because my coach, Ron McCracken, trained all the Olympians. So all of a sudden now I'm introduced to a strength and conditioner, someone who does all your press-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups and different weight routines. And then I've got a nutritionist, somebody who tells you what you should be eating, when you should be eating it, jumping on the scales, measuring your body fat. Then you've got a physio. When you're injured, it's like, bloody hell, this is a luxury. I'm getting a massage on my bad neck, my bad arm. This feels good. Actually, they fixed my arm. This, is not, and this only came right at the end of my career. Like if you yeah. compare me to somebody like Anthony Joshua, 
Anthony Joshua's got a team of about 30 people around him. He's got right. a commercial manager. He's got a manager for his sponsorship, someone who looks after his social media. Um, he's got a strength and conditionist, nutritionist. Um, he'll have certain spine partners that he always uses. Then he'll have different trainers to hold the pads, different people doing, doing all sorts. He'll have a different physio for... He'll have, a, he'll have a psychologist to make sure he's thinking straight, you know, make sure he's believing in himself. He'll be talking to someone who un- makes him understand how the brain works, like logic and emotion and what the amygdala does in the brain and how that flags up when you get nervous and how you've got to control it with logic, not emotion. Because if you fight on emotion, it's a bad thing. So, you know, I was just old school, gladiatorial, spitting dust and hard work, dedication, me and my coach, Rob McCracken, until the end of my career when I was introduced to a couple of the couple of the boys at the English school, but they didn't work for me. I just kind of used to piggyback on them a little bit and get bits of information off them and see how all the Olympians trained and just like look at their protocol. So I was kind of introduced to that kind of luxury at the end of the career. But sometimes I think it softens you. Sometimes I think when you've got too many people around, you're pampering you, or you've got an injured arm, or you need to have a week off because your arm's sore, and, or you might need to have an operation. I'm like, you know what? I'll just get on with it. I'm injured. I'll just suck it up and get through it. If I pulled out of every fight, every time I was injured, if I didn't box because I had a broken rib or my eardrum was perforated or I got a sore back or my Achilles tendon's about to snap in half because it's really sore and it feels like it's torn, I would have never been a world champion. I took fights with broken ribs, bad backs. I broke my hand in round two. I got my eardrum perforated in round three in a fight. You know, I'd just get in there and get on with it. Like the old school fighters like, People like Arturo Gatti and um, Mickey Ward and Roberto Duran, some of them hard, tough, old-school fighters. And, you know, a lot of them fighters now are, are a dying breed because all the new fighters coming through, um, you know, you've got, you got some fighters in, in America that get looked after really well. You've got a, a kid called Garcia who just beat our guy, Luke Campbell. And he's, a bit, he's quite famous on Instagram. He's got, like, over a million followers. And, you know, he's getting that pampered treatment. Don't get me wrong, he can fight. He's got fast hands. But he's getting so looked after and so sort of wrapped up in cotton wool. You do wonder when he fights, oh, he's going to fight somebody called um, the Tank from um, Javante Davis. He's from Baltimore. That's a strong weight division, what he's in. And when that fight happens, I just think the toughness and the, the hardness of Javante Davis will beat someone like Garcia because Javante Davis is, you know, most of his friends are either dead or in prison. And he, he got out of that gang life and he's rough and tough and he's from the street. And if you put someone who's rough and tough and just hard, just hard to the core. They've been brought up hard. They've never been privileged or pampered. You put that in with somebody who's had, who's had a privileged upbringing and who's had all the physio and the strength and conditioning and all the, all the, all the injury treatment and been really looked after. I just think you put someone who's a tough nut and, and, and hard against somebody who's been looked after like that. I just think the hard man's going to come out on top. And I, I think that I've beaten people in my career just because I'm quite a hard a hard guy, just a tough guy who, who won't take no for an answer and who refuses to quit. Um, but yeah, I think the question was, how big is your team and how much goes into it? At top level, the team can get really big. For me, I was kind of the last of the old school and it was all just about me and my coach, Rob McCracken. We used to turn up to fight night and we used to take care of business. But, but, but times are changing, times are changing. 
I, I got to, cause that's the, that's the thing that was very interesting and it makes sense. But in terms of social media, which is, I guess a little different now too, than the, the, the peak of when you were there, Instagram, maybe just starting, right. And these type of things, but who's like on day of fights and organizing press conferences and, and, and putting out some social stuff or taking talk shows or whatever, how, like, how do you, did you, were you sort of managing that yourself and deciding what to do? Or did your, you know, your wife, like who would help you with organizing? Cause like you want to focus on fighting and preparing and not deal with all the noise. So, you know, how do you, how did you sort of, uh, how are you able to do that? Like with, with not really having a big team at the time? To be honest, it, it wasn't as big. You're, you're right. You, you hit the nail on the head. Just as I was coming towards the end of my career, social media really took off. I was on Twitter for quite a lot. I've got like nearly 700,000 followers on Twitter. But if you look at my Instagram, I've only just recently started growing that and got involved in Instagram. So I've got like 80-something thousand followers. So the social media wasn't that big and it wasn't that important. And the, you know, the, the sponsorships and the commercial side of it wasn't as big either. I kind of just missed that towards as I was finishing my career, then the social media got a lot bigger. It got a lot bigger and, and the presence on social media made such a big issue and made such a big difference to your earnings and your career earnings. And, and whether or not you were classed as being a famous fighter or someone who was not that big, you'll get judged on how many followers you've got now. Where right. When I boxed, when I boxed, it didn't matter. You didn't care. You didn't. So I, I was never really that involved, but I, I did a few chat shows. I went on Jonathan Ross. I went on some morning BBC, some morning breakfast shows but my manager well my promoter the guy who promoted my boxing he'd just say listen they want you on this tv thing next week and i'd say yes or no if it was a good one like jonathan ross you're going to get millions of viewers then you'll do it if it's not a very big thing it's just a radio show but it's at like six in the morning you know what i'd rather be sleeping or i'd rather be on my run than doing the radio show it's not that important i'm not going to get paid it's not really going to promote the fight much i don't do it i couldn't imagine now being involved in boxing and being a real top level fight like anthony joshua He's heavyweight world champion, and he's got so many sponsors, Under Armour, Lucasade, um, Beats, Beats Headphones. I mean, he's doing so much. His schedule must be absolutely rammed. And it's no wonder that he went over to New York to fight Andy Ruiz, and he got beat up. You know, he got so much on. And he, he, he changed the way he, he prepares for fights, and he changed how much how involved he gets with all the commercial stuff after that. Because I spoke to him, and I seen what he was doing on the run-up to that first fight before he went out to New York. To fight, to fight Andy Rowe. I don't know if you saw that fight. The rematch was in Saudi Arabia, and I was there as well. And I knew that he'd done a proper 12-week camp and not got involved in all the, all, the, all, the, all the noise on the outside of his training camp. He just focused on his training and his sparring and, and doing the boxing, which is ultimately what you do. And the stuff after that, now I, I used to do quite a lot of stuff after the fight. So on the build-up, I'd do my obligation. I'd do my interview with the local news. I'd do the stuff with Sky Sports. I do the press conference, I do the weigh-in, and that's all I do. After the fight, I do the chat shows, I do the dance show, I do the bits and bobs, but it's okay because you're not fighting. You've got two or three weeks off. You can do some television work. You can do all your bits and bobs. But when it was fight time, I just used to concentrate on getting myself prepared for fighting because if you get in that ring and get beat, nobody cares. Nobody, nobody wants to know you. If you keep getting beat and you lose, all your sponsors will go away. All the people that follow you will disappear. You've got to concentrate on the fundamentals and the important stuff. So, you know, like I say, when I was world champ, the commercial stuff and the social media stuff wasn't as big as it is now. And it, and it is important now. It is important because all the top fighters and all the top earners and all the people that are making the money and are getting the fame and, and getting the fruits of their labor, 
rewarded to them as much as they, they can be and maximizing it. They've all got big social media presence and they're always on the telly doing different bits and bobs. So, you know, that for me, that wouldn't have been good for me, I don't think. I think I would have been quite annoyed by that. Yeah, it's almost like now it's you got to be, like out of your your pie of time of uh, you got you got to put in a lot do a lot of this other stuff that maybe takes away from the uh, you know from your actual craft and, and becoming a, a the best. Exactly. The first time I thought the first time I fought George Groves, I was doing a dance show with my partner. It was a dance show called Stepping Out. Now, if you if you Google that Stepping Out, Carl Frost, you'll see me doing the dance. I did the cha cha cha, I did the rumba, I did the bloody bangra with my with my now wife wife Rachel. And that was, that was like four or five weeks of my 12-week camp. I was doing a dance show on television. I should have been in the gym training for the fight. And there, there you go, look. <laughs> and I was doing that dance show when I should have been in the, in the gym training. And, and that fight was my, fight, my first fight with George Groves. I got put down in round one. I got beat up for six rounds and nearly got, nearly got knocked out. And I managed to turn it around and then get that controversial stoppage. Now, the only reason that fight was hard for me as far as I'm concerned is because I was doing that dance show and doing too much TV, prancing around when I should have been in the gym, sparring and training. So, it's, you know, it's all well and good doing that social media stuff and all well and good doing stuff that's going to make you famous and make you into a TV celebrity. But bottom line is, when you get into that ring, you've got to be fit and strong and well prepared or you're getting beat up. You know what I mean? So you've got to, really, you've got to, it's got to be a nice balance. And that's why you need to have a big team around you when you're top level. Right. Um, yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, it does. And I just saw this uh, my lead moderator here, Marco Gostavem. He had an uh, interesting question too, because I know you're really into the world. You do commentary. You're, you're immersed in the sport. What do you think with COVID, uh, the pandemic on growth of sports like boxing? Do you feel like there is much more growth with TV online viewership, or does it hurt fans because they can't spectate? How do you how, do you think it actually impacts in what way COVID for a sport like boxing? I think it's negative because there's not enough opportunity for the fighters now coming through to fight. Like the amateur boxing clubs are all closed. Mm. Like they're closed. They're not even open. So the grassroots of boxing now is being affected. Um, okay, the England squad's still open and they're, they're doing the socially distancing stuff and that there's still the odd tournament going off and they're still preparing for the Olympics, which may be, may be cancelled. Um, but there's no fans. And if there's no fans watching sports, then the, the interest's gone. Okay, they're watching it at home on the television. But, but more so than anything... Boxing, I think, needs a crowd because the fighters feed off the crowd. But mm. secondly, the, the opportunity for the fighters to actually get out there and fight and earn money now is so few and far between. It's scarce. There's been, I usually work for Sky. I usually do probably, I do probably 12 to 15 big fights a year. Um, in 2020, I did three fights. I did, I did one in March, just before, well, February, just before lockdown. And I did one in October, one in November. Oh, no, one in October, one in December. So I've done three fights. And that's it. Now, that's, that means the fights haven't been happening. So I'm hoping that this year, but we've got off to a terrible start this year because we're back in lockdown, you know, and, you know, say what you want about COVID-19. Obviously, people are getting infected and people are dying. But when you compare year on year the amount of people that get ill with illnesses and, and, and flu-like symptoms and flu-related illnesses, there's no big spike from year. If you look and check the figures and check the statistics, I do, I do wonder sometimes, I do think to myself, are we overreacting by locking people in the house on house arrest and stopping the world from, from turning, stopping people from going out? And when you look at the statistics, which is really, really sad, I did say I wasn't going to get on, on all this. We weren't going to talk about it. We could talk all day. But just when you look at statistics like people that are committing suicide, for example, which is so sad, 
and 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 such you know what could be worse than somebody being that depressed and that upset with life and thinking there's no end game for them that they just take their own life now suicide there's been four thousand suicides four getting on for five thousand suicides in 2020 alone that's up from about 2000 so it's more than doubled and the amount of people that have died with COVID-19 under 60 was something like 388 and look at the figures so 300 under 400 people under 60 have died from COVID which is tragic and it's horrible and it's but because of that because of that you know because of the lockdown and because of the what they're doing and the restrictions they're putting in place right. creating more and more there's more and more problems going off I do I do think that at some point we need to try and get back to some kind of normality and start yeah. to let people out of the houses or start to let people back to work. The problem, the problem with what you just said too as well, because you can look at a statistic and say a death or this happened, but you're not looking at, you know, even let's not say someone could suicide, but depression, uh, fam- divorce, uh, relationships, you know, there's a lot of other things that can't be measured that are, that are having effects, right? Like that are negative from this whole process. So, you know, it's, exactly. it's a so much misinformation. I, think I, read, that, I read something that lockdowns been proven that lockdowns do not work. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, it's interesting in like Miami versus California or LA, you know, Miami's open essentially and, and uh, LA is not or different New York city and what's like, what's worse or how things are going and hospitals being full. It's, it's just like, you know, it's, you gotta, you gotta use common sense and what that means for you and your family and your situation and do your best because it's confusing. You know, like one country, one city, one governor says this, one guy does that. People say, don't do this, but then the officials are out to dinner, but they're saying, don't go out. Don't, you know, like it just, it, it's just a lot of uh, hypocrite, hypocritical thinking. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a crazy time. It really is. It is. A, it's a, like, we're, we're, we're living for a transitional period here where, where, you know, without going too deep on conspiracies, yeah. I think there's more, there's more to this. There's more to this than meets the eye. That's yeah. all I'd say. And I, I, I'd I, urge I, people, I I'd urge people. We've had a great conversation and podcast, and, and and that's the same thing. I love to chat and, and bounce yeah. ideas off. But you know, you get crucified if, if you start talking. Of course you do. You're a public yeah. figure. People, you can't all make. I, yeah, exactly, exactly. All I'd say, all I'd say to summarize is, yeah. just just do your own research. Yep. Don't always believe. Don't always believe what you hear on the television, and don't always don't always trust. Don't always trust mainstream media. Just have a look at some alternative media or do your own research. Like look on the Office of National Statistics and have a look at what's going off and have a look at, you know, do your own research, basically. And look yeah. at alternative news as an alternative media. Read books and read other stuff. Don't just, don't just be a sheep and be told what to do. I'm not saying whether people are saying things that are right or wrong or giving you any advice on how to behave or act and how to treat covid but yeah. what i would say is don't be scared to death by the media because they only report bad news let's be honest they only report I, bad news i'm i'm uh, i'm a lot we're aligned i think that's a great way to put it and uh, you know you, exactly you got to make your own decisions you got you got to look at different types of information and, and, and do your best because uh, it's easy. You look at one news outlet, one channel, and then look at another. They could be literally different reports or a different message. So you got you to go with your heart. All right, I'm going to give away a $111 ticket courtesy of Mr. Carl Frock of Party Poker. Someone's got 111 man. That's a nice. That's a, that we got the KO series going on Party Poker right now. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to load this up, and then I'm going to let you tell me 
when to choose a winner and then we're going to we're going to ride off and you know hopefully do a hopefully we'll do a follow up man after you win the million dollar knockout yeah. one guaranteed on Sunday we'll do a, we'll do a follow up you can do it from your uh, you know from your phone take down the event so i'm going to i'm going to download that just just to stop you really quick you call me Carl Frock and my, my granddad and my grandma used to call me Carl Frock because they're from Poland and they'll pronounce it Frock my, my my granddad boy check Frock but it's actually pronounced Frotch with a ch at the end Carl Frotch yeah, there right. you go. I, I like that. I don't want a yes man, man. You got to. I'm, I'm not. I'm not offended at all. Well, I want to. I, I appreciate you letting me know. I'm sorry for that. And then again, I uh, I appreciate this, man. This has been an amazing conversation. And you tell me when we're going to pick this $111 ticket winner, and they're going to have a ticket for this this weekend on Sunday. Well, I'll just say now. Yep. Right. Let me just say. Let me do. Let me go. Let me go. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Someone who deserved this. Someone who really could do with this ticket, and they can go on and do something with it and win. Three, two, one, hit it. Boom. All right, we're going to shoot. I am sure we're loading it up. 111, man. That's a nice, it's a nice juicy ticket. There it is. Chris Robinson, 81, man. Congrats to you. Uh, we're going to go ahead and, and uh, looks like you got a baby and he's got a ticket. So we're going to, we're going to send him a message and then we will, we'll, uh, we'll give him that. Where's, he from? Where's, where's Chris Robinson from? Is he, is he on after the woods or? I'm not sure. Uh, 37 year old. Look, maybe Toronto. He's repping the Raptors, the Finns, uh, the Jays, Liverpool. Also, yeah, Queens. Uh, I'm not sure, but maybe oh, Liverpool. My wife's from Liverpool. It's a good. It's a good football club, Liverpool. Yeah, that'll do. That's yeah, a good That's pick. Rob's club as well, man. He's been a, been a happy times for Liverpool recently. They got a. They play a strong brand. So, uh, well, cheers. Listen, man, I appreciate it very much. Thank you for for going above and beyond, and uh, I've learned a lot. My pleasure. Of and uh, it's a pleasure. Hopefully, get to play live uh, together. We, you know, maybe we'll uh, be at the be at a big uh, big table this weekend in the the KO series one mil one k. I'll see you on the tables and appreciate it very party much. Poker, party poker are given a lot of tournaments. There's a lot of options. You know, you're locked down now, and there's a lot of there's a lot of tournaments to play, and they're really hitting it big. So, you know, I'm really proud to be involved as an ambassador for party poker. Now, I'm yes. looking forward to getting involved this weekend. And people who who are signed up, thanks for joining. And um, look forward to. Um, Hopefully getting a win. Good luck to everyone. Yes, man. Cheers. Good luck to you. I'll see you on the tables. And uh, I know we're in the right, we're representing the right, the right team. And, and it's a great brand. And you know, Rob Young and, and everybody at Party, they do an amazing job. And I know uh, I'm very happy to be there. And, and I know you are too. So cheers, man. Appreciate the time. Definitely. Pleasure. Take care. All right. All right, guys. That's Carl. That's number 114. The man, the myth. We are breaking down a lot of stuff, his career. We covered a lot. This will be on all the podcast outlets, as well as, of course, this was on video. It'll be for your viewing delight on YouTube on a replay anytime. So again, thanks to Carl, and we'll, uh, we'll be checking in with him soon. Thanks for listening to this episode. It was brought to you in partnership with Party Poker. Go to PartyPoker.com to play tournaments, cash games, and improve your poker game. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear all of my future episodes.